program to bring you a special report. Welcome to episode 102 of Not a Robot Podcast's DC Comics Review Show. Today is going to be a bit of a different episode. Um, our two other amazing co-hosts uh, were unable to read the DC books for some other reasons that I won't get into. Um, but uh, because of that, it's uh, it's just going to be me going solo this week. So hopefully that doesn't go terribly. Um, I'm going to have to just kind of sit here and talk to myself for the next hour and <clears throat> see how that goes. Um, but yeah, uh, this week uh, we will be covering uh, Batman 125, Poison Ivy number two, Flashpoint Beyond number three, and Dark Crisis number two, with a couple of honorable mentions and a few spotlights thrown in there uh, before we get into our main reviews. Of course, make sure you stick around until the end of each episode to hear our top three books of the week, The Biggest Stinker, and to find out which titles might just make the dump list. If you'd like to support us further, please visit Buy Me a Coffee dot com forward slash NAR podcast for either a one-time donation or subscription for access to our discord as well as other exclusive content available on the network uh, but with that out of the way uh, I guess I'll talk about uh, some news for this week um, really not a, a ton on my end um, there are a couple of uh, new interesting books coming out that I, I think are uh, worth mentioning um, one is from Vault, uh, called Heart Eyes, from Dennis Hopeless and Victor Ibanez. Um, don't know too much about Dennis Hopeless. I know a couple of books that he's done, but nothing that uh, really uh, was a, a major uh, mark in my, my comics reading journey. Um, uh, but I know Victor Ibanez uh, did uh, work with, with Dennis Hopeless on Jean Grey um, back in 2017, um, but uh, more recently, something that I read was uh, a book called Rat Catcher from Andy Diggle and Victor Ibanez, um, and he did uh, really stellar art on that, all done in black and white, um, with a couple of gray tones applied, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, this is supposed to be uh, a very simple um, kind of chaos story, post-chaos story, where instead of it being, you know, some kind of nuclear apocalypse or, or some kind of man-made apocalypse, it's just uh, good old-fashioned monsters is how it's described. Monsters invading uh, the Earth and uh, how society reacts. And our story focuses on a young woman by the name of Lupe, who for some reason is very happy and always smiling in this horrible monster-filled land. Um, and it's about her journey falling in love um, with a young boy named Rico who saves her life. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens from there. But the first issue is out August 17th, 2022, <clears throat> uh, from Vaults, um, and uh, you can pre-order that now. They have a preview available for uh, anyone who's interested on adventures in poor taste. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely say it's uh, it's worth your time uh, to check it out when it comes out. Um, but uh, maybe let's not focus on books that are soon to come, but books that are already out, uh, starting with uh, one from uh, someone we certainly are no stranger to here on the network, and that is Mr. James Tynan. Uh, I wanted to recommend The Closet, number two. Um, that's a book that I really enjoyed. Um, uh, really like the first issue. It's definitely very personal, very family-driven. Um, kind of felt like a Jeff Lemire book almost, um, but filtered through 
James Tynan's voice, which I, I really appreciated. Um, and number two is certainly keeping that atmosphere going. Um, <clears throat> there's definitely a horror element to it, but that I would say is more subtle. Um, it really isn't until the end of both the first and second chapter that you see the more outright horrific elements, but the themes of horror and distress and you know pain and all that stuff are kind of uh, more subtle throughout the book and the family drama and stuff like that. So definitely recommend checking it out. That is from James Tynan and uh, Mr. Gavin Fullerton uh, with colors from Chris O'Halloran, which is a great way to connect to another recommendation I have, a book from a friend of the show, Mr. Ed Brisson, that we talked about while uh, we were interviewing him. Uh, There's Something Wrong with Patrick Todd, number one, which is finally out today. Uh, that features uh, art from Gavin Guidry with colors from Mr. Chris O'Halloran and is, of course, written by Ed Brisson. Um, I read that one actually shortly before recording and uh, really, really enjoyed that one. Um, strong start. And I think um, <clears throat> it's definitely going to be in line with some of the stuff that Ed has done before, the very uh, character-driven, down-to-earth stories. You know, these are people who are often down on their luck or something like that, um, but with a supernatural element um, that uh, will keep your interests going um, if you're looking for something more there. Um, and uh, definitely has a, a mystery uh, towards the end that I, I really want to see how that all plays out. So um, I'm hoping that uh, this series can... Uh, really be something special. Um, you know, Beyond the Breach uh, was um, a really great book from, from Ed Brisson over at Aftershock. Um, and uh, I hope they find a way to, to bring that one back. Um, but, uh, you know, if this is a new Aftershock book that, uh, that Ed is doing, I, I really can't complain um, if, if he's delivering stuff of this quality. So uh, there's something wrong with Patrick Todd. I mean, with a title like that, it'd be hard to forget it. Um, but uh, also definitely worth your time. Um, yeah, I don't believe I have anything else really, um, in terms of comics news. Um, there was one minor thing that I wanted to bring up, um, that came out last week, um, or I think maybe, uh, two weeks ago. Um, and that was, uh, pretty exciting news, um, over at our, our, uh, marvelous competition, um, and that was the announcement that they would finally be releasing uh, Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham's sequel to their first story on Miracle Man, The Golden Age, uh, where this sequel will be called The Silver Age. Um, and it's just sort of crazy uh, that it's actually coming out after all this time. Um, I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. Um, I thought it was one of those projects that was just sort of never really going to come to fruition. They talked about having a certain number of issues done, but I figured it was all tied up with um, rights and, and uh, ownership and that nonsense. So um, I knew Marvel had the Miracle Man license and then I think lost it or something like that. Um, but I never really thought they would actually, uh, you know, allow uh, Gaiman and Buckingham to finish their story. So it's really exciting that, uh, that we get this. Um, and, I'm definitely eager to see how they continue the, their Miracle Man story. Um, I'm hoping that if we can get uh, Miracle Man to come back, we can get uh, Alan Moore and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's big numbers to come back. That's that's another great unfinished epic that I hope one day comes to fruition. Um, uh, one more minor note. Um, there is a new animated film uh, coming based on the Super Sons called 
Batman and Superman Battle of the Super Sons. I uh, just nearly forgot about that, but I, I saw it in my feed, so I figured it was worth mentioning. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, that is, uh, you know, exactly as it sounds. It's going to be starring the Super Sons for the first time in, uh, in animation, uh, some kind of new uh, story involving the Super Sons. So I don't think people are, are going to be too upset about that. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, I almost hope that they could get uh, Pete Tomasi to be like a, you know, consulting writer or executive producer or something like that. Um, Cause Pete Tomasi did a wonderful job on Super Sons when he was writing that title. Um, a little disappointed they didn't lean more into the, the Jorge Jimenez style. It looks like they're opting for more of like a, a 3D style, um, but uh, you know, looks like it'll be really fun and, uh, and cute and uh, something that you can definitely uh, watch with your kids. Um, one final one that I, I wanted to mention, um, and, and this is more related to me, um, but, uh, you know, for, for any, any uh, comics fans who were online in like the, you know, early 2010s uh, to like 2015, this might be relevant to you, but um, over on the Word Balloon podcast with uh, John Suntress, they had a little celebration yesterday of the 30, or sorry, not the 30th, but the 10th anniversary of Monkey Brain Comics, which was one of the very early digital imprints, right, when, um, you know, Comixology was getting big and, and a lot of people were trying out some of the new digital stuff. And Mark Wade had Thrillbent and, um, you know, a, a couple of other people were, were doing some stuff online. Um, and, uh, and Monkey Brain with uh, Chris Roberson, who you might know from iZombie, and these days he's doing a lot of the Mignolaverse stuff, um, and, uh, and his wife, Allison Baker, founded Monkey Brain and brought in a bunch of creators to just do these digital series that you could read. And, and I had read Edison Rex. I hadn't really read any of the other ones, but I liked Edison Rex um, just because it's a great title. Um, and it was really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see that even after 10 years, they're still kind of, you know, they're, they're still kind of uh, doing their thing. I mean, I don't think they're actively publishing anymore. The, the imprint still exists, but all the rights have reverted to the creators, uh, you know, with the exception of, the Edison Rex stuff, because I think that's just co-owned by Roberson and uh, Dennis Culver. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. It unfortunately got cut short for some reasons, but um, I was excited because, yeah, I was, you know, as, as a fan of Edison Rex and um, that era of like digital comics, it was, it was nice to kind of look back to a time where things were a lot more simple. Um, now there's so many different types of, of digital books that you could read on Webtoons and Tapas and um, all these other great resources. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, back then a lot of the stuff was just like comics creators who had only worked in print, trying to figure out how to serialize their stuff on the internet. Um, and it was really cool and, um, and fresh and new and, uh, books like Edison Rex, while not groundbreaking, were, were definitely very exciting at the time. So, uh, that's over on the word balloon, uh, podcast. You can check that out. Um, and it's just a good way for anyone who, even remembers the monkey rain stuff uh, to kind of reflect back on a, on a time past. Um, but yeah, with all that said, I mean, I don't think I have anything else to mention. Um, I want to get a few honorable mentions out of the way, some of which I've read, some of which I haven't. Um, monkey Prince number six is out this week. I have not been following this series, but I know Josh has. Uh, and he's been speaking very highly of it. So um, if you're a fan, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. It looks great. At some point, I'm just going to have to catch up with it all. Um, but I just 
have been reading so many other things that I just have not had the time uh, yet. Um, but Monkey Rinse number six, that's out now. Um, <clears throat> the Joker number 15, which is both the finale to this big, long 15-part saga, as well as um, the end of the series, actually, um, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah, the final issue of the series. Um, I, I debated putting this in the main review section, um, but in all honesty, I didn't really have a ton of thoughts about this one. So maybe if we get a chance to do, you know, a proper review with all three of us, uh, we'll get a chance to debrief about Joker. But honestly, I didn't have a ton of thoughts about this one. And for a book that was really riding high for a while, um, it, uh, yeah, it just, it wasn't the best ending in my opinion, but uh, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, and DC Vampires number seven, DC versus Vampires number seven. Uh, came out this week. It's the return of the main series. Um, that's, of course, Matthew Rosenberg and James Tiden with Otto Schmidt, who is amazing. Um, and uh, that's a lot of fun. Glad to have that back. It's certainly interesting to look at the world post-Rise of the Vampires. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely keeping its its, its comedy going. Um, I haven't really been keeping up with a ton of the tie-ins uh, that they've been releasing for DC vs. Vampires. So I'm glad to just have the main series back that I can follow uh, and enjoy. Um, so that's, that's very exciting. But, uh, yeah, with all that said, uh, let's get into some of the main books for this week or so actually let's let's get into some of our spotlights uh for this week before we get into our main reviews uh and first i'm going to shine a spotlight over on nubia queen of the amazons this is of course written by stephanie williams with art from a letha martinez um and the rest of the team i'm pulling up because i should have written it down but i did not uh, inks from Mark Morales and John Lysay with colors from Alex Guimares. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. And letters from Becca Carey. Um, yeah, this is, you know, kind of checking in on Nubia following the end of the first issue. Um, she has some, some more interactions with uh, some, of the, some of the other Amazons in this issue, as well as teaming up with Hot Girl and... Uh, and um, uh, Yara Floor, um, and just really kind of continues the story. Um, I <clears throat> didn't get a chance to do quite as deep a read on this one as I might have liked, um, but uh, definitely um, we'll have to go back and, and circle circle back to this one and, and you know, maybe give it a, a proper read through at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was, it was okay from what I remember. I mean, I don't really think I'm doing it justice all that well. Um, but, you know, for what was sort of an unimpressive first issue, I don't know that this really changed my mind in any significant way. Um, it just sort of continued um, the, the same emotions that I've been feeling since the last issue, which is very meh. Um, for a book that, that really had a lot riding on it, especially following the trial of the Amazons, um, I really expected a lot more. And uh, I'm just kind of waiting for for something. I don't know, some some kind of major points uh, to, to happen in this story that I can really latch on to. Otherwise, I'm just not really feeling it at the moment. Um, and maybe that's just sort of the case uh, following Trial of the Amazons. I mean, that was a massive story and certainly involved a lot of moving parts. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess I feel like I'm waiting for 
like I said, something major to happen. And I feel like this is just kind of retreading things that we've already seen um, in previous issues of, of uh, Nubia and the Amazons. Um, so, yeah, I really didn't have a ton to say about this one. You know, the art is fine from, from uh, Aletha Martinez um, and, and the rest of the team. But uh, really the standout is the cover from uh, Kari Randolph, who's always, you know, amazing. She really knocks it out of the park. And there's a variant cover from... Torin Clark, um, who's absolutely incredible. And uh, if you want to see him just blow your mind, um, he does a lot of, of uh, process posts over on Instagram um, where he breaks down his art process and it's absolutely mind blowing. Um, so, you know, I, I would recommend covers, but I don't know how much I'd recommend the series. So uh, I gave this one a seven and a half out of 10. Not really a ton to say. <clears throat> uh, next up we have Batman Beyond Neo Year number four. Uh, this is brought to us by the really, uh, again, I, I have to say, kind of stellar breakout team of, of late. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, um, who have been doing amazing work here and there. I, I, I can't sing the praises of a Harbinger enough. Um, uh, that that was a book that I, I really really enjoyed um, right up until the end um, and, and including the end, um, but I was quite sad to see it go after eight issues. Um, uh, and of course, art from Max Dunbar with colors from Romulo Jr. and letters from Aditya Bidikar. Um, Terry is fighting the Sword of Gotham throughout the city. That's sort of the bulk of this issue. Um, again, Terry is still. Um, fighting against the sentient city, the sentient Gotham, and this time he sort of has his, his next round with the actual sword of Gotham and the trading blows and all that sort of stuff. And it's really putting Terry at his limits um, and, and challenging him in a way um, that uh, you know, probably has, has not happened in quite a while, especially considering that he doesn't have you know, Bruce to fall back on. And of course, we're also checking in uh, with Barbara Gordon and, and everything that's going on with her as she's retiring. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it still is kind of keeping the action going. Um, you know, it's probably just my Batman beyond bias showing. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> I've definitely been uh, satisfied with the story so far. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping that maybe there is a sequel in the works to this or an ongoing. Um, I, I would hope that with such a, a really sharp team, um, and story like this, they wouldn't just kind of end it. Um, after six, but, you know, maybe they just want to have a really solid story and, and call it quits, but I hope that's not the case. I, I really do, um, because I would love to see more from this team, more from this era of Batman Beyond, and, and just to see more of what they could do. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I gave this one an eight out of ten, really satisfied. Max Dunbar certainly delivers in the art um, realm of this, and uh, really gives some, some solid work um, throughout the, the book. Um, some really kinetic panels between the fight of the sword of Gotham and Terry. Um, and, uh, you know, just um, really, really sharp stuff. And, and the colors in particular from Ramon Party Jr. as, as always are, are really stellar. Um, so definitely check this one out if you can, if you enjoy Batman Beyond, or you're just looking for a really interesting, um, you know, uh, cyberpunk-esque story, um, set in the DCU. So, yeah, um, the final one that I want to give a spotlight to that I pro probably should put on the, um, the honorable mentions, but I, I just, uh, you know, uh, 
decided to, to give it a little bit more time and I wanted to shout out the creative team um, is Multiversity Teen Justice number two. Uh, I actually also did not get a chance uh, to read this one. Um, believe it or not, my store didn't have any copies of this one left. Um, and uh, I, as much as I would love to read it online, I've really been enjoying this one in print. So I'm honestly just going to wait uh, until they restock um, and, uh, and, and, and I get my stuff in order. Um, but uh, no, I want to shout out the team. Uh, this is, of course, written by Yvonne Cohen uh, with Dan Lohr. Uh, with art from Marco Faila um, and uh, colors from Erika Angelini um, and a really gorgeous cover from Robbie Rodriguez that, uh, you know, at some points I can't even tell that it's Robbie Rodriguez. It's, it's just uh, really well done. Uh, not that his other stuff isn't well done, um, but this one is just kind of in a very different style, at least from some of the stuff that I'd seen that I didn't even recognize it upon first glance. Um, so... Yeah, really, really, I, I hope will be a really solid read. Um, the first issue was fun, very cute, um, just seeing the, the different versions of characters. And uh, while there wasn't the most robust story, it was just kind of nice checking in um, with our, our friends on uh, Earth 13, um, or Earth 11, excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just seeing what they're up to and, and, that, and that sort of thing. So. It's not the, the greatest story in the world, at least according to the first issue, but it is a lot of fun just to kind of see these alternate versions and, and not uh, not take itself too seriously, uh, which I appreciate. So I'm looking forward to checking this one out um, when, I, when I get the chance, but I, I have not gotten to read it yet. Um, but that about does it for our honorable mention section. Uh, so before we get into our main reviews, we are going to take a brief, I'm going to take a brief commercial break. There's really no we here. Um, I'm going to take a brief commercial break, uh, and then I will be right back to finish the rest of the books for this week. And I am back. Thank you very much for sticking with Not a Robot on this rather unconventional episode. Uh, to kick it off, we are going to be looking at the second biggest uh, event of the DCU canon right now um and making our return to a rather twisted realm with flashpoint beyond uh, number three this is of course written by uh mr jeff johns with uh jeremy adams and tim sheridan uh providing um some additional work as well um uh, art from Zermanico with a couple pages towards the end by Mikhail Hanin, colors from Romulo Fajardo and Jordi Belair, coloring those Mikhail Hanin pages, um, letters from Rob Lee, and yet another gorgeous cover from Mitch Gerrids, which again, I, I think that this book is in, in some ways kind of an apology for Infinite Frontier, um, and, and not necessarily the quality of the book itself, just the um, artistic inconsistencies of that book since there were so many different artists involved and originally it was announced to just be Josh Williamson and Zermanico but they had a number of fill-in artists uh, Paul Peltier and, and Tom Derenick just to name a few um, whereas this is I mean the same artistic team as Infinite Frontier um, but uh, but just reapplied somewhere else so uh, a part of me almost thinks this is them saying well we're sorry that we couldn't have a more consistent team on Infinite Frontier. Here's another book with that same team, same cover artist, same penciler, same um, colorist, 
um, as, as, as had originally been intended for Infinite Frontier. Um, but now we're going to make sure that it stays consistent because all three issues thus far have been illustrated by Zermanico. Um, and boy, he's doing an amazing job so far. Um, but our story starts on the planet Krypton, a story that you may or may not have heard before, where a rocket is, is jettisoned from the exploding planet of Krypton and makes its way uh, towards Earth. Although something is a little different about this one, because this time Kal-El is jettisoned alongside quite a few other rockets, rockets who we will come to learn about later. Uh, but we see that this rocket in particular, the one that we're following, that has a message being spread uh, throughout it uh, or throughout the, the opening part of the story, is making its way uh, to Earth uh, and first arrives in Smallville Canvas. I'm sure you've heard this story, but wait, there's a twist. Uh, you can insert that, uh, that robot chicken clip there. Um, this rocket flies right past Smallville, Kansas and does not land in a cornfield and instead makes its way towards Metropolis, where uh, because of its speed and size, the impact that it makes is that unto a missile and completely eradicates the city, killing millions. Um, the entire population of Metropolis, according to this, uh, was decimated, um, or according to a report, was decimated. Uh, we check in with Dexter Dent and uh, Mr. Uh, Oswald Cobblepot, who are working on lockpicking, and, and uh, Ozzy's showing... Dexter, how to pick a lock. Um, while they're in the middle of their training session, uh, the reverse flash shows up and is spouting, spouting some kind of crazy nonsense. They're not really able to understand in any way before disappearing almost immediately, uh, which we will get more on later. Um, but they kind of brush it off as some nonsense, and Ozzy in particular uh, <laughs> has no idea what's going on. But he decides that he needs a drink, and he's going to make sure that the kid gets one, too. Or at least asks if the kid gets one. He's a minor Aussie. Don't give him anything too strong. Um, when last we checked in with Dr. Batman, he had met the, uh, the Kryptonian Kal-El of uh, the S1 experiment, our strange, demented version, or the Flashpoint strange, demented version of... Um, uh, of uh, Superman. Uh, so Superman, or S1, or the Super-Man, um, is giving uh, Thomas a very clear ultimatum that he needs to come with him um, and that uh, he has something that he needs to tell him, something that is important. Um, they're still in the alley at this point, the alley where... Uh, Dr. Batman had taken out the decidedly not rogues, but still very villainous rogues. Um, uh, and uh, the one who is very obviously Captain Boomerang tries to get a couple of shots off at Kal-El, which does not work at all. Uh, and Kal-El gives him the most horrifying face you've ever seen and tells him that if he does not make his way out of there, he will die. Um, turns his attention back to Dr. Batman and informs him that he really needs him to come with him to tell him about something that's important. Um, and, you know, Thomas does all but flip him off and tells him that uh, he's really not coming with him, that he has nothing to say to him. And there's, there's nothing that he can do or, or make him do um, without, you know, him getting out of it, which <laughs> Kal-El promptly uh, shows him that that is not even remotely the case by knocking him out 
uh, and taking him to the sanctuary where uh, Poison Ivy and the rest of the Forgotten are staying. Uh, but before we check in with Poison Ivy, um, we get a brief little check-in with uh, Gilda Dent, who in the last issue had cut her face almost perfectly in half on the glass and is now having uh, mysterious voices speak into her head um, and, and uh, is, is telling her things about you know, what, uh, what she should do or, or what, what uh, she should get, um, particularly in reference to Dexter. Uh, and I'm sure that will play out soon. I don't know who that voice is necessarily. Uh, I originally thought it might have been her uh, psyche, maybe her, her two-faced psyche manifesting itself, or possibly uh, a psyche that resembles Harvey that's manifesting itself, although that would be a little bit too derivative of Batman Earth-1. Um, but in any case, we'll see what happens there. In the sanctuary, um, uh, called the Oasis properly, um, uh, Dr. Batman meets with Poison Ivy and the others um, and, and gets a, a sense of the land uh, before Kal-El informs him of what he really wants out of Dr. Batman, something that is, is coming and coming soon. Uh, and he grabs one of the Kryptonian crystals that had uh, crashed alongside his rocket uh, and connects it to Swamp Thing. Uh, and when it does, he gets the spooky Jor-El um, hologram, except this time it's not a hologram. It's made out of vines and plants, um, but uh, presumably still speaking with the voice of Jor-El. Um, and this version of Jor-El informs him that Kal-El was only one of several rockets that were sent to multiple different planets, not to act as benefactors, but to act as conquerors for the coming Kryptonians. Now, back to our program. And so this race uh, of, of Kryptonians, as you can tell, is, is quite a bit more uh, <laughs> sinister uh, than the ones that we've seen previously, which is, is fitting uh, for this version of the DC Universe. Um, but Cal really has brought Dr. Batman here um, to try and get his assistance, um, you know, to, to fight against the Kryptonians, and, and in particular, Poison Ivy um, uh, alerts them that uh, they really need to try and build some kind of resistance, um, like they had done previously to take on um, uh, Aquaman and Wonder Woman, um, their, I guess, bizarro version of the Justice League, if you will, um, to try and find some way to stop the Kryptonians when they make their way to Earth, which uh, Swamp Thing, this version of Swamp Thing, as Jason Woodrew informs them, will be in five days. Uh, Thomas Wayne, once again, essentially flips them off and says, screw that, I have my mission, I just have to solve it in a smaller amount of time than I had thought, but it doesn't matter because I'm not going to help you with your Kryptonian nonsense, and I'm going to get my proper reality back. Get the proper reality back. Uh, we check in with the commissioner over in Gotham City, um, who is checking on a body um, that had recently appeared at the office of one Iris West, um, who was terrified when the body just appeared, um, or, 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 you know, was, was there um, and, uh, and, and decided to run home. And, and when she came back, um, that body was totally dead. Um, I, I guess that this body was still kind of clinging on to life um, as it arrived. But by the time she got back with her husband, uh, it was completely dead. Or he was completely dead. And that person is none other than Mr. Abard Bond, the reverse flash. This guy's died so many times at this point. You should probably like just make bets on how quickly he'll come back. It's insane. Um, but he's arranged in such a fashion 
that looks almost like a clock, a mystery, I'm sure, as to who the clockwork killer might be. Um, before we get to the end, we check in with uh, our, our favorite time hunters who are traveling through hypertime right now, which is extremely volatile given everything that's happening with the great darkness um, and, and this newly reformed Flashpoint reality. Um, and, and Bonnie, uh, the sister of Corky Baxter, Bonnie Baxter is trying to make sure that they stay safe um, uh, away from all the craziness with the great darkness and potential revisions and all that stuff. And the best thing to do might be to just ride the storm of hyper time until all the great darkness stuff blows over, just to make sure that their history is not revised as well. Um, but things are really only getting worse in hyper time because it's totally chaotic and crazy right now. Um, so yeah, that was uh, flashpoint beyond number three, definitely a lot going on in this issue. Um, very packed uh, with material. Um, I'm still really enjoying it. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I, I liked the, uh, the many, uh, um, uh, references, um, to, to DC events or, or to DC characters that now have a, a sort of weird twist on them. I guess that was kind of the fun of the original Flashpoint universe was seeing these strange, bizarre versions of characters um, as Poison Ivy is mentioning some of the heroes that they want to um, elicit to, to, to help them. Um, some of the ones that are mentioned are uh, a boy in Roy or Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, who has a dial, a special dial, that gives him superpowers named Snapper Carr, um, a scientist in Solar City, Florida, uh, known as Eclipsa, um, and then, of course, some of the regulars I've seen before, Cyborg, Element Woman, Starman. Um, and uh, it's, it's strange because I guess Element Woman now exists both in the Flashpoint universe and in the main universe. It's just we haven't seen Element Woman in, in quite some time. But I remember she was one of those strange... Um, uh, uh, alterations in the Flashpoint universe that existed um, throughout the, the new reformed New 52 reality and probably still exists in the main DC universe today. Uh, just like I said, we haven't checked in with her in a while, so it's hard to say um, whether or not she's still around. But uh, if that is the case, then yeah, we have two element women. But no, it's cool seeing all the, the fun Easter eggs, both to, to regular DC continuity uh, or references to DC continuity um, and, and of course previous Flashpoint continuity. Um, and it was seeing, it was interesting seeing this kind of twist on the Superman mythos where the Kryptonians are not just this, you know, um, incredibly generous race, uh, or at least the, the Kents are very, not the Kents, but the, the Elves are very generous people. Um, and they're, you know, trying to send their, their son to a world to grow up normal and to be a savior, but instead to be a conqueror which again, I, I do feel is fitting with the Flashpoint universe. Um, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that Kryptonian invasion plays out. Now, I do worry that this story has a lot to juggle um, because it's both trying to continue the mystery of the Clockwork Killer, while Thomas Wayne is also trying to figure out how this new reality, this new Flashpoint reality came to be, um, while also tying in with the Dexter Dent stuff and the Gilda Dent stuff um, and the Time Master stuff. Um, and of course, now we have the Kryptonian invasion angle. Um, and there were a lot of moving parts in Flashpoint, the original Flashpoint, don't get me wrong. 
but the focus was really put on Barry Allen, and the focus is clearly on Thomas here, but introducing all these different elements can make things a little muddled, and I'm worried about how it's going to tie everything together, especially given that this is a uh, six-issue miniseries, and we're already on issue three, so we're halfway through. Um, I, I just really hope that they're able to tie everything into a neat little bow, or at the very least, try and tie everything up in a way that makes sense. Um, it was also kind of surprising to see how much this tied into some of the stuff that's going on in the DC universe right now, and I guess we'll get into that later, um, but with you know Dark Crisis and, and everything else that's going on, um, they were pretty explicit about the references, especially towards the end with the Time Masters and how all of this stuff is happening. Like it's 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 going on. The the great darkness is making its way towards um, you know Earth Prime or New Earth, while they're dealing with everything in hypertime in the Flashpoint universe. So I guess these these two things, Dark Crisis and Flashpoint uh, Beyond, are happening concurrently, um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Although, as we previously established, we don't really know what the timeline is on this. So maybe they're not happening concurrently. We saw Barry Allen in the first issue or second issue, if I remember correctly. Um, and obviously that can't really line up with the Dark Crisis timeline because Barry is still trapped on Earth Flashpoint 1. Um, so not really sure how that makes sense, um, but uh, I'm sure they'll be able to figure it out in some way. Um, but I, I'm not really worried so much. I'm just sort of enjoying the ride right now. And of course the art from Zermanico is out of this world. So many gorgeous panels. Uh, one in particular that just kind of focuses on Thomas after he basically tells Poison Ivy and, and Kal-El to F off, um, that it's just so well illustrated and so well colored that it was really a sight to behold. Um, and I was, I was very, very impressed uh, with the art in this one. Zermanico just, just doing amazing stuff. So uh, I gave this one an 8.25 out of 10. I'm enjoying the ride so far. And uh, although I'm cautious about the number of plot lines that this uh, story is juggling, I hope that it can stick the landing and give me something really satisfying. So. Uh, that's very cool. Uh, moving right on to our next title, and I debated moving this one towards the end um, because it is, as the title on the cover promises, a very new and exciting era beginning in this one. Uh, but why not just talk about it now? So we're going to go from Gotham City to Gotham City, except this was a different Gotham City, one that is much more familiar to us and is not quite as twisted, though still twisted in many ways, as we'll soon find out. This is Batman 125, brought to us by the very exciting new creative team of, yes, Mr. Chip Zdarsky, Mr. Daredevil, Howard the Duck, Sex Criminals himself. That's his full title, by the way. It's over on Substack, if you don't believe me. Um, and uh, yeah, Mr. Mr. Chip Zdarsky making his, his uh, I, I would say, even bigger DC debut, even more so than uh, Urban Legends and the Batman Red Hood story uh, that he did about a year ago, because this is the, the main... Uh, flagship title baby this is this is the big time so um you know everyone's very excited and anxious um and and uh, ready to see uh what uh mr zadarsky is going to bring to this book so i'm not even going to blab about the the context anymore let's just hop right into it um and uh and, and get into it but yes of course this is written by chip zadarsky uh with respect to the rest of the creative team uh, also, some giants returning, uh, Mr. Jorge Jimenez, who is um, the most evil man in the world because he is both incredibly handsome and an incredibly talented penciler um, and inker and colorist and all of these things. And it's not fair because no one should be that talented and that conventionally attractive 
you can't have everything. Um, so I hate him. He's evil. Um, but damn, if he doesn't make stuff look good. Um, and it makes me so incredibly jealous. <clears throat> um, Got to shout out the rest of the team. Colors from Tomu Murray, who's been coloring this book for like three years at this point. God bless you, Tomu. Um, you're doing great stuff on Noctera. I hope you're coming back, buddy. Um, we, we love you here, and uh, we're very happy to see that you're continuing with this book uh, with letters from Clayton Cowles, who is also a titan in his own right and uh, probably one of the best letters in the biz right now. Eisner nominated uh, for, for Jimmy Olsen. So if that doesn't <clears throat> show you his prowess, I don't know what does. <clears throat> we also have a couple of varied covers that I have to shout out. A gorgeous one from Inchuk Lee <clears throat> um, and a very exciting one from Jim Lee uh, and Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair. Um, you know your book is special when you get a Jim Lee variant cover. So um, I think that means that this is off to a great start. But let's actually get into the story itself. Um, we flash back to another time, a distant time in the past where um, you know, we're looking back on a, a simpler time where, where Alfred is in the Batcave cleaning up after, after Master Bruce um, and his, his energy drinks when he hears a mysterious beeping in the background. And he's sort of caught off guard by it, but he doesn't know what it is. Uh, but we cut away from there to a really strange scene of three different Jokers. Trust me, it's not that kind of story. Uh, but three different Jokers who seem to be haunting Bruce in a nightmare as he wakes up rather suddenly with the very dramatic opening monologue that I, that I love. I never dream unless I want to. Only Batman could say something like that. Uh, only he could control his dreams uh, as he further elucidates um, and says that he only uses it when he wants to activate his subconscious to try and solve a mystery while he's sleeping because God forbid Bruce should get some peaceful sleep. No, he's got to be working even when he's sleeping. That's how dedicated the mission is. Uh, but Bruce, feeling very unsettled by that, that Joker dream, and uh, I can imagine anyone would feel unsettled by a dream like that, decides to call someone very close to him, Selena, to kind of check in. Um, and she is, you know, doing her thing, and they have a little bit of back and forth. But unfortunately, Selena has to uh, hang up early, presumably to continue having sex with Valmont, um, who is living with her at the time. Uh, and if you're reading Catwoman, you know what that's all about. Um, and Bruce seems to be almost a little put off by this um, based on that facial expression um, and uh, kind of elaborates that maybe it's time to move on from the past. And that includes past relationship and past emotions. Focus not on the future and not on the mystery to come, but on the present and what's going on in Gotham right now. What is going on in Gotham right now? Well, Selena uh, mentioned it during their conversation that someone is targeting the rich and killing them. And uh, Bruce is on the mystery, is, is, is on the case, trying to figure out what's going on. And we cut to a high rise at Gotham City where the police are on a standoff right now, uh, sort of waiting for the sniper who's at the window um, or, or waiting for the shooter who's at the window um, to, to make his move. Um, uh, because they're not really sure what to do next. They have snipers in position. There's no sniper at the window um, and are, are trying to uh, figure out what to do next um, before it, it escalates any further. Um, but as one of the uh, police officers uh, rather uh, uh, slyly mentions, I don't think it's going to get any worse because Batman arrives on the scene in a very dramatic fashion, um, proclaiming uh, to the scared perp who's inside that it's not God who's here, it's someone 
far, far worse. Or at least that's the implication. Uh, so you get an awesome fight scene where Batman takes down this perp, makes his way downstairs, and finds that the two uh, people who were in the apartment have already been killed. A rather dark and grim opening, uh, I have to say. Like, just cutting to the, the deceased bodies without any kind of pleas for help or anything. They're already dead and they're just sort of lying there. Very, very grim choice on, on Mr. Zdarsky's, uh, uh, on Mr. Zdarsky's behalf um, and uh, illustrated rather gruesomely by Jorge. Um, but Batman, feeling incredibly uh, upset about this, pulls the perp back through the window and wants nothing more to do with him, isn't going to punish him in any particularly worse way. He just wants one simple answer, and that is, who sent this guy? We cut in a very dramatic fashion to the person who could only send this guy, and that is Mr. Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin, uh, but a very different version than we've seen in Flashpoint Beyond. This is a Cobblepot who is a lot more ruthless and, dare I say, egalitarian, uh, because he has declared an ultimatum on the people, particularly the wealthy people of Gotham City, uh, stating that anyone who's ever inherited more than $5 million will give that money back to the people of Gotham or they will die. If their family inherits the money after they die and they don't donate it, they will also die. It's about creating a better Gotham, I guess, but only through force. Um, why is Penguin doing this? Well, as Bruce mentions, it's rather silly considering that Penguin himself was born into considerable wealth. The Cobblepots, as we've established in previous Batman comics, were a very wealthy Gotham family and certainly were not living poorly. Um, but Cobblepot seems to be doing this for more personal reasons, given that he has always felt neglected and shunned by Gotham's elite and is finally trying to get his justice. Uh, Bruce is watching this live stream that, uh, that Cobblepot is issuing um, before the arrival of Mr. Tim Drake, the current Robin in Gotham City. Damien's off doing his thing, as, uh, as we established in Robin. So Tim is, is, is um, filling in as Robin for the moment, uh, pinch hitting, if you will and acting as, as Batman's trusted partner. Um, Tim is checking in on Bruce in particular. I mean, he's you know, concerned that uh, his friend, the, the couple that was murdered um, by the perp uh, in the previous part of the story, uh, might have affected Bruce in some kind of way. And Bruce is rather upset, um, but uh, kind of remarks that even though Colin, who had been a playboy in his previous days, but had finally settled down, um, had found happiness, he, Bruce Wayne, the Batman, cannot seem to afford that luxury. Um, and Tim is concerned, and rightfully so. He sort of checks in um, because him and the rest of the family feel that after Bruce lost his fortune and wasn't being invited uh, to a lot of the big events anymore, he sort of just gave up on being Bruce Wayne, which is an idea we've seen before um, and is something I'm going to mention later. Um, but in particular, it seems that... that uh, they want him to kind of, you know, go out more and, and, and be more Bruce. And, and um, Batman sort of refutes that, yeah, that is kind of the case that, um, you know, I have been more Batman lately. And because I haven't been invited to all these social gatherings, um, I haven't really had any reason to. And it's actually given me more opportunity to go out and, and fight the good fight as Batman. Um, but he sort of puts Tim at ease um, and, and lets him know that he was invited to a recent gala. Um, one that he knows is going to be a target for Penguin, of course. It's not going to be all for, for fun and games. Um, but uh, 
he's going to make his way there tonight and, of course, asks Tim to be his uh, second-in-command while he's running this operation. Um, so we cut over to the gala. Bruce Wayne is arm-in-arm with the eye candy of the week. Classic Bruce Wayne. It's a hot blonde on his shoulder, and he's acting like the, the you know, the ridiculous airheaded playboy that we've seen him be in the past and uh, tells his, his lovely date to make his way over uh, to the uh, to the dance floor while he hits the men's room uh, just to do his, you know, his, his little rich boy thing. Um, but uh, in reality, he's making his way to the bathroom, uh, not to rendezvous with Tim, but to pick up some supplies because he knows Penguin is going to hit the gala and soon. Um, Tim heads straight for the boiler under directions of Bruce because he knows that in all likelihood, Penguin is going to go for something simple. He's a simple man. He's going to go for the simple option, which is gas. Um, and that will be released through the boiler room. So Tim makes his way to the boiler room, disables all of Penguin's guards that are there, um, and automatically is, is setting up a neutralizing agent to make sure that when the gas is released, it won't affect the uh, people in the gala too severely. Um, Penguin arrives on the scene in a very dramatic fashion, uh, proclaiming that the people uh, in this gala do not deserve their wealth, um, and they will soon pay for their uh, you know, unfair advantage in life. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> his gas does not release on time, as he expects. And Batman, wearing a suit, or not really a suit, but like a collared shirt and pants with a belt and a bat cowl, shows up on the scene looking like a pirate. It's utterly ridiculous, but it doesn't really matter because he's able to make quick work of the rest of the goons while also disabling Cobblepot. Tim arrives on the scene um, and is able to make quick work of the rest of the goons um, while uh, Batman turns his attention back to Cobblepot and is wondering just what the hell he's doing. Like, What is this whole crusade about? And that's when we discover that this penguin, at least the one at the gala, is not actually penguin, but is in fact Clayface working on behalf of Penguin. Um, why is Clayface working on behalf of Penguin? Well, we don't really have the answers for that just yet, um, but we know that he is exacting some kind of plan, a plan that had two uh, potential routes, the first one being gas, the far more simple one, and the second one being far more destructive as he had planned to blow the gala up uh, to, to you know, total rubble. Um, but the people in the gala are trapped right now and are trying to make a quick exit. Robin is trying to set explosives at the door because they're locked right now and trying to make sure that everyone uh, gets out. Uh, and Bruce uh, rather coldly turns towards Clayface and lets him know that if the people are unable to make it out um, and uh, Clayface does not help assist them, he had injected at some point in the past a formula in Clayface that, when detonated, would destroy all, presumably all of his molecules in any kind of, of, of trace of Clayface and pretty much completely eradicate him, um, which, I mean, it's just straight up murder. So I guess Batman likes to kill now. Um, obviously, he probably wouldn't use it, probably bluffing. Um, but, uh, you know, Clayface is not willing to take that chance. Um, so as Tim is trying to assure the people that he's going to blow the doors and get them to safety, one of the penguin goons pops off a shot and connects right through Tim's neck in a really gruesome panel. Again, this, this book is very, very visceral and very dark um, from, uh, from Jorge. Um, but uh, pops off a shot that goes straight through Tim's neck and looks almost like a clean shot to, to one that uh, I thought if it went straight through um, his neck there, he'd surely die and bleed out. But thankfully, Bruce is able to, uh, to, to suture the wound fast enough 
to get him to the Batmobile. Um, and thankfully, the, the doors had exploded uh, after Tim had been shot, so the rest of the people were able to evacuate while Clayface is providing cover. Um, and Bruce is rushing to the hospital. Tim, who, uh, for reasons I cannot understand, is somehow still able to speak, um, even though he should have a hole through his windpipe right now, um, <clears throat> tells Bruce that uh, it's a little risky taking him to a hospital right now, especially given that he's dressed as Robin. And as soon as he gets to the hospital, they're going to know that it's Tim Drake. And if they figure out it's Tim Drake, they're going to know it's Batman and so on and so on. Uh, and Bruce uh, already has a plan for that, uh, a rather grim plan as he flashes back to the last time that he had to do something like this, which was, of course, the death of Jason Todd. Tim isn't dying, or Tim isn't dead just yet. He's, he's close to dying, but he's not quite dead. Um, and uh, uh, is, is sort of running through a, a monologue in his head or, or some, some internal uh, reflection in his head where he's, he's thinking about how he had to do this the last time and how, you know, there may just never be a bottom to his mission and, and how such a, a grim thing can continue to happen to the people that he puts in his care. And, and even though he had, thought about really just hanging up a towel after the death of Jason Todd, which is a very justified thing to have um, and a, a very justified thing to do after the death of your partner. He continued going with the mission because he knew that there was no putting an end to that. So um, he undresses Tim um, as he had done with, with Jason, puts him in normal civilian clothes um, and takes him to the emergency room uh, where he will receive immediate care. Uh, but while they're in the hospital, Bruce decides to pay a little visit to uh, someone who I had not expected to see in the hospital, someone who apparently has been a lot more sick than he's been letting on, Oswald Cobblepot, the penguin, uh, the real penguin, I should say, who informs uh, Batman that uh, he's dying of mercury poisoning. I guess it's all those fish, maybe. I mean, fish have mercury in them, I think. I don't know. But for some reason, he's dying of mercury poisoning, and... Uh, in his final days, he's decided that he is going to get his last revenge on the elite of Gotham, who never gave him the time of day, who always treated him like crap and, and treated him like an outsider because he was different and weird. Not necessarily because he was a self-made man, he made himself into quite a wealthy citizen of Gotham, but because he was always treated uh, with disrespect and shunned because of his freakish appearance. Um, and boy, they really play up that freakish appearance uh, in this issue. He looks like the Danny DeVito penguin. From, uh, from Batman Returns. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, definitely a dark moment and a dark encounter uh, between Batman and Penguin. Um, Penguin sort of <laughs> uh, is, is telling him that it doesn't really matter what he does. He already has the plan in place. And in fact, he has one more final plan for Batman, uh, a plan that he seems to pop off right now as he slips a cyanide pill or some kind of death pill that puts him deep in shock um, to the point of death, uh, where I believe that if he is, is not dead, he'll at the very least be in a coma. Um, but I think this very well may be the, the death of Penguin, or as, uh, as Batman calls it, Penguin's last stand, um, done in such a way that uh, while Batman is trying to revive him as he's choking um, on whatever pill he took, uh, it looks like Batman killed him and he'll be able to frame him for murder and that sort of thing. Um, Batman, seeing that he's obviously being framed, um, makes his way out of the hospital and immediately flees the scene and makes his way back to one of the various micro caves um, where I guess he just tries to go to sleep. We're not really given context for how soon after uh, the next scene takes place, whether this could be a couple days or, or 
um, shortly after uh, he flees from the hospital. Um, but, uh, but Bruce feels that there really is something deeper at play here, a mystery that he just doesn't have the full picture of quite yet, uh, a mystery that he feels like he's lost under and he doesn't really know what to do next, which after everything that's happened with Fear State, after everything that's happened with Batman Inc., after everything that's happened with Shadow War, um, it, it definitely feels appropriate for him to feel kind of adrift, like this is a, a mystery that's hitting me right in a vulnerable place at a very vulnerable time, and I don't know if I'm prepared for something like that. Um, before we uh, head out um, of the Batcave, uh, we check in one final time uh, as the mysterious beeping uh, is answered, and we find out that this is a strange uh, uh, mechanical robot, cyborg, some kind of thing, maybe not cyborg, but some kind of automaton called Failsafe that has now been activated. And I wonder if this is something that the Penguin had devised, or in my theory personally, is that it's something that Bruce had come up with, a failsafe to come online when, you know, shit had really hit the fan or he had hit a, a low point. Because um, we'd seen him mention earlier that he had hit, you know, or, or he ever wondered if there was a bottom to all this and, and uh, you know, wondered if he could ever just hit an absolute low point and it could go no lower. And maybe in his darkest moments, kind of like with OMAC, uh, we, as we've seen with, you know, previous things, uh, designed a program um, that would, you know, act as a failsafe in case he, he fell. Um, but yeah, wow, what a start. Um, this was, yeah, part one of Failsafe. Um, this was actually, I read this earlier this morning, and that was the third time I had read it. I read it, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I read it uh, around 3 a.m. on Tuesday because uh, I was really excited to, to check this one out. Um, and I just couldn't wait until a normal hour. So I decided to stay up all the way until 3 a.m., which is, of course, midnight uh, Pacific time when all the comics are released. And I, and I bought my digital copy and I read it. And uh, I, I have to say I was pretty whelmed upon that first read. Um, but the second and third times, the book really presents something different. Um, so for those who are reading this book, I would highly encourage you to go through it a couple times because one of the immediate things that I noticed from this book is that it is not a, um, it, it is not a, it is not a, a one and done read. And I, and I don't mean that as like a one and done story. I mean, this is not a, a book that you read and put away and don't read for a year. This is a first issue that you can read multiple times. It flows really, really well which I, I was impressed by. Um, and it definitely lends itself to multiple different readings because it feels like it's setting up a lot, and it is, but there are a lot of themes that are being introduced and reintroduced that are both tying into previous Batman continuity and trying to present some new stuff um, uh, to, to craft a new, uh, different era uh, of, uh, of Batman. Um, and I really appreciate that. Um, some of those themes might be, you know, very apparent from the jump. I mean, the obvious reference to um, death in the family um, from, from Starlin and Aparo um, with the death of Jason Todd, um, that being a very pivotal moment. Um, but there were also some, some elements from other stuff that I, I kind of caught here and there. Um, the idea that Bruce is kind of prioritizing being Batman over being Bruce Wayne is something that's been explored in, in, uh, in Bruce Wayne Murderer and Bruce Wayne Fugitive but also was kind of toyed at a little with the beginning of uh, Grant Morrison's time on Batman, where he'd been spending so much time 
as Batman, it was almost becoming obsessive and we had to relearn how to be a Bruce Wayne character for the public. Um, and in this case, we're kind of seeing a similar thing where after Fear State and Shadow War and everything, he's just been running really hot as Batman for a long time and he hasn't been spending enough time as just Bruce Wayne, a member of Gotham, um, which I appreciate. And I hope they lean more into that um, of like, yeah, I do have all this time and I feel like I want to spend most of it as Batman, but I probably should be more Bruce Wayne. Like I, I, I it's, it's, it's probably the thing that I should be doing. Like Tim is, is in the right and the rest of the family are in the right, but I just don't feel that compulsion to be Bruce Wayne. I, I want to be Batman. I want to be more of Batman. Um, and like I said, we've seen that before, but I think it's an appropriate exploration given everything that's been happening and how much Batman has been present throughout um, his, you know, his stories for the past year or so. Um, it is also a very dark book. Um, and I had seen interviews where Zdarsky was talking about the kind of tone that he wanted to set with this book. And it was a lot darker, a lot more, um, I don't think gritty is the right word, uh, nor do I think horror is the right word. I think dark is definitely appropriate both visually, but also tonally, um, because this, this is a book that is dealing with death, with, with pain, with loss, with, um, feelings of, of regret and and um, certainly feelings of failure and, and um, hopelessness. I saw a, a review that called it nihilistic, um, which I, I don't know that I would entirely agree with, but I do think there is an almost hopeless quality that, that is underneath the surface and, and is kind of bobbing up here and there where Bruce is asking if the mission is, is even worth it. Is there a bottom? Can I keep doing this? Like, I feel like it's it's just too much, which again, I feel like um, and, and this is sort of the central point that I had, and I don't want to ramble too much, um, although I guess I can now, because uh, I'm the captain now. Um, but uh, I, I do feel like this is, this is a story and this is a, a, a theme that is really appropriate for the era. And you're going to hear me say that a lot, I think, probably with the next couple of issues. Like, this feels like the right story for everything that has happened uh, with Batman in the last year and a half or so. Like, he's just been running really hard as Batman and maybe it's time to kind of like, okay, get back to earth and reflect on like, well, well hell, I've been doing all this stuff and everything is still going on in, in Gotham. And it's not that the city feels worse. It's just, how am I feeling? Like, am, am I doing better? Can I do better? Is that even possible for me? Is it even worth it to keep going? Or is it just a hopeless, endless crusade? And so I feel like that is just the appropriate story to tell right now. Like, let's really just dig into that. And I'm hoping that those are the elements that are explored. Um, now, story-wise, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I mean, dealing with the Penguin, and it sets up a lot, but um, not a ton there, really. I mean, there are a lot of moving parts here. Um, and it, it almost feels, it teeters on the edge of being cluttered, because there are definitely a lot of things that Zdarsky is introducing and toying with that um, I feel like, could be explored in a lot of different arcs, and it would be um, almost a disservice to just try and tackle everything in one arc. Um, so I, I, I almost feel like this is the arc that you write when you only think you're going to write Batman once in your life. So you're like, okay, I'm going to stuff everything I possibly can into here. Let's go. Um, but uh, Zdarsky has made it sound like he's going to be here for the long haul, so really doesn't have to worry about that. So I hope that, that all of the things that are being teased will be explored a little bit later. Like, you know, give it some time to air out. Like the, the, the thematic stuff of like hopelessness and, and Batman really kind of questioning the mission and all that stuff, 
please let's get to that first because um, I think all that stuff is just remarkable. Um, Art-wise, the book is is amazing. It's about as great as you could expect from Jorge Jimenez, who has become an iconic Batman artist in a very short amount of time. I mean, I knew this dude was going to be great on Batman back in Justice League. I remember seeing his full body shots of, of Batman in um, The Sixth Dimension, uh, which is one of the arts that uh, Snyder and uh, Jimenez did on Justice League. And I mean, even from there, I could tell that like this dude if he ever did Batman, he was going to be something special. And then he just blew it out of the park. And he was working with Tynan, even though the stories weren't great artistically. The guy was just, just going on all, on, you know, firing on all cylinders, just, just going on all sides. I mean, just amazing, amazing stuff. And I can tell here, um, because Jorge, bastard that he is, um, has talked about tweaking his style a little bit because he knew that this story was going to be a little bit darker. And whereas um, all the stuff that was going on with Fear State and the Cowardly Lot was sort of a, a very different style of Gotham, very cyberpunk, very um, uh, noir, neo-noir influenced uh, there. Um, he definitely had a, a new influence that he was bringing there, but this one was going to be more darker, um, more darker, darker. Uh, and, and definitely a lot uh, uh, bloodier and, and more visceral than uh, previous stories. Uh, and it definitely shows, um, as, as I mentioned, in a few places where um, you really just get these very grim, very gruesome shots of, of people either dead or getting shot, as in the case with Tim, or you know something like that. Where they're, all, all, that all that bloodiness and all that uh, brutality is put on show. It's not hid in any way. Um, and I really appreciate that. There are points where it becomes almost too muddy and too geometrical, where um, it, it almost loses me for a moment. So I can't say this is Jorge at his best, but he's absolutely doing some, some great stuff here. And I appreciate that he's at least trying to make the run look distinct from things that he had done before, because it could be very easy to just stick to the style that worked with Fear State and then just run with that. But that would get kind of boring because it's like you've already seen it before. And, you know, as good as it is, you want to try something new, especially if it's going to be a new type of story. And I really appreciate that even if it doesn't work in every single panel, Jorge is committing himself to trying something new with his style. And again, just shows the versatility of this dude um, and makes me hate him even more because what the fuck? You can just change your style at any moment. Like, screw you. You are so artistically talented that you can just completely try out a new art style and pretty much almost succeed every time. Um, but that's just my jealousy talking. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is a hell of a start. This is definitely a first issue that feels like a, a and, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun too much here, but this definitely feels like a first issue that is, you know, trying to be a classic first issue. And, and when I say trying, I mean succeeding, really, because even if it was not a perfect first issue, I mean, those are hard. Those are always kind of difficult and tricky to land a really stellar first issue um but uh but this definitely feels like one of those classic like okay we're starting something big here um and, and we're really trying to see how that plays out and I, I got the feeling from that like right when we got to um to the, the dream that, that bruce was having with the three jokers um and I'm, I'm hoping that i'm not wrong there but i get the feeling that that uh, this is you know a really like classic start here like this is going to be a point where people turn to and say, you want to read a good Batman story, start here. Um, and uh, I, I really hope I'm not wrong with the rest of the arc uh, in that regard. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it's it's got a lot going for it, um, and uh, I'm really hoping that it, it sticks the landing. It's a six-part arc. God only knows what's coming after that six-part arc, um, but uh, I'm really hoping that this run delivers. So I, I would, again, I would definitely encourage people to read this a couple of times, because the first one may not be that satisfying. And I remember thinking the same thing about his Daredevil run, too, because... You can flash back to 2019 when that started, Daredevil, number one, when we were all 15 years younger. Um, I read that issue probably four times, um, because the first time I read it, I was sort of met on it. Um, and even now, that first arc is a little awkward in the grand scheme of things, though I think it has definitely grown on me a lot more um, since 2019. Um, but even then, I, I sort of knew, like, okay, this is an issue I'm going to have to read a couple of times just to kind of get a sense of both the handle and the characters, the tones and themes of the story and everything that's being set up here and everything that's trying to uh, establish itself um, for, you know, what's to come. Um, so again, I would highly encourage people, if you're feeling a little kind of, I don't want to say put off, but maybe let down by that first read, give it another read, maybe give it a third read, maybe give it a fourth read um, and try and do something that, uh, you know, uh, or, or try and see if there's something else there that, that really works for you. Um, because I, I do think that this is a, an issue that warrants multiple reads. But for the main story, I gave this an 8.5 out of 10. Um, and I, I feel like it's setting up a lot of stuff, a lot of very interesting stuff to come down the line. We have a backup story also from Chip Zdarsky with art from Belen Ortega um, and colors from Luis Guerrero with uh, letters from <clears throat> Clayton Cowles yet again. Uh, probably should have written that down. Sorry, Clayton. Uh, but this is a fairly short one, uh, just kind of um, tying up some stuff now that uh, Penguin is, is dead, or at the very least, not active at the Iceberg Lounge. Uh, and there's a couple of power players in Gotham that are trying to encroach upon uh, the Iceberg Lounge, because in addition to being a real hot spot for gambling, it's also a place for gangsters to launder their money um, and, uh, and, and move certain drugs and other things um, and it's just a really ideal spot and so we are introduced to a few um, new players in Gotham one Finbar Sullivan um, who uh, is, is a client and also one of the gang leaders we're also checking in on the Hasegawas uh, or the Yakuza led by Aiko Hasegawa um, who we already have met in uh, Genevieve Valentine's Catwoman and uh, re-met in the current uh, Catwoman run who's now running all of the Yakuza trade um, in Gotham City. Um, and Catwoman is sort of trying to act as the mediator between the various gangs that are flooding in and trying to take over Penguin's uh, territory. Um, and is really trying to act as like, um, you know, the, 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 the righteous voice here. Like, let's not erupt into yet another gang war. We've already done this multiple times. Uh, we don't need it again. Um, but uh, thankfully, before things get too bad the uh <clears throat> the underbroker shows up who uh we met during Tynan's run um and he shows up with a new friend called the executor who is the as his name suggests executor of wills in particular wills of the um costume criminals of gotham and he is here to announce that uh before they can do anything uh, with Penguin's land, and, and, and if they even try and do anything, he'll be there to fight him because he's a giant metal behemoth. Um, but uh, he's here to execute Penguin's will, um, and when he does that, everything is fair play. But before that can happen, he needs to make sure that the right people are found, um, and, and the will is 
uh, properly conveyed to them uh, before anyone tries to make major moves on uh, the Iceberg Lounge and the rest of Penguin's territory. Um, Selena sort of wants no part in that and is dreaming of simpler times of jewel thieves or, or, or jewel robberies and, and uh, you know, house burglaries and that sort of thing. Um, and is kind of trying to move past that era uh, of stuff, uh, given, even given everything that's happening with Aiko, Haskawa, and Valmont and all the nonsense that's going on in that Catwoman right now. Uh, but she has a rather unwelcome visitor from, or has a rather unwelcome visit from the executor who is trying to enlist her services uh, to act as a, not manhunter necessarily, but let's call it scout. Um, to find uh, the uh, locations of the people that are mentioned in Penguin's Will. And who are these people? Well, let's just say they're rather close to Penguin and leave it at that. Nah, I'm just kidding. They're his children, apparently, of which he has 10. Um, that should make for an interesting one. I'm wondering if this is going to be like a 10 to 12 part backup saga um, as, as, you know, Catwoman looks uh for the various uh children of penguin we've already met a couple actually um or, or maybe just the one uh i forget his name but the, the son of penguin who's a bad girl um so i'm sure he'll pop up uh maybe or maybe not we'll see um but yeah i mean you know decent backup nothing outstanding great art from belen ortega um i think she's going to be a rising star in dc i can just tell her style is kind of similar to jorge jimenez uh, um uh kind of poetically enough, I should say. Um, so it works very well as it flows from one story to the next, um, though the colors are definitely different um, and, and mark the shift in stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, Belen does a, a great job uh, and there's no arguments there. Just, you know, it's, it's kind of another Catwoman story. It'll be interesting to see how that goes, but I'm, I'm sort of wondering whether or not this is just going to be a, a small story or if it really is going to be like a 12-part saga. And if that is the case, I'm wondering why this couldn't just be in the main Catwoman book because there is definitely a place for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, with that being said, really, really satisfying read all around. I gave the backup story um, an 8 out of 10. Uh, sort of reminds me of the, um, the Brubaker and Darwin Cook backups from Detective Comics' uh, Trail of the Catwoman right before they would go on to do their Catwoman series regular um, back in 2002. Um, and it was sort of like Slam Bradley's on the hunt for Catwoman because she's disappeared after a whole other stuff in the run that I won't even get to because she was presumed dead. Um, but uh, sort, of, sort of like a fun twist on that there where instead of um, Slam Bradley being on the hunt for Selena, now Selena is on the hunt for someone else or at least is trying to locate uh, someone else or someone's else, as I should say. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that was a reference to that, but it just kind of reminded me of another backup, uh, with Catwoman, uh, where, you know, they're trying to find people. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would give an eight out of 10 for the backup, 8.5 out of 10 for the main story, but I, I really dug the main story so much that I'll just give them a whole issue, like an 8.5. I'm not picky about it. Um, and, uh, I do think that, uh, it's setting up some really interesting stuff, uh, to come for the rest of the series. <clears throat> Next up, we have Poison Ivy, number two. Uh, I was very excited and very terrified to read this book. I hated the first one because it was so good um, and so amazing and blew me away with the quality of its story um, that I was just, I, I hated it because I was like, 
I, there's no way the second issue is going to be this good, and that sucks. That I know the joke is like the second issue slump, um, which is both in reference to sales uh, as well as the quality of the story. Um, but uh, I, I really was hoping that it would not be the case with this one. So why don't we just find out if it if it holds up? Um, but this is of course brought to us by the incredibly talented G. Well Wilson with art from Marcio Takara, colors from Arif Prianto, and the wonderful letters from Mr. Hassan Atzman, El Hau. Love you, buddy, over at Strip Panel Naked. So glad you're doing more stuff. Um, Ivy, who is still in Portland, I believe, or Seattle, um, if I remember correctly, is checking in at a diner. Um, rather tired, rather uh, uh, rather strung out. Um, and the, the nice uh, worker... Yeah, and a kindly, uh, the kindly restaurant owner checks up on her and uh, gives her some food, tries to, you know, revive her a little bit. Um, and uh, we're introduced to uh, uh, a presumable friend and, and maybe confidant of, of Ivy moving forward, a woman by the name of Jenny, who is a poor excuse me, a poet, starving poet, starving artist, I'm sure we've all met one of those before, who apparently is also on the run. Um, as the cops arrive uh, shortly after they're all sitting down and enjoying each other's company, um, and Poison Ivy is having her usual reflections on what she's going to do when she activates all the spores across the country that have been um, spreading to the rest of the people in the restaurant and things like that. Um, but the police arrive and are there to arrest Jenny, who apparently decided that uh, because poetry was not paying quite as much as she hoped, she needed to get a side hustle. Uh, but thankfully, <clears throat> Ivy is able to use the Lamia to, um, let's say, influence uh, the, the police officers rather suggestively so they can make their escape. And then once they're at the door, she's able to flip the Lamia around into being deadly and, and kill the cops um, while she returns to her van. Um, but uh, yeah, basically um, Ivy, you know, is kind of uh, back on the road and uh, makes her way uh, to a, to a hotel where, or motel, I should say, where she wants to lie low for the time being. Um, and we get a couple flashbacks, one in particular that I want to mention between her <clears throat> and the gardener that I really liked where, She's just really livid um, and and almost um, un, unchained, um, given that she's trying to do anything to go back to being Queen Ivy, um, not because of, you know, any kind of uh, emotional or things like that, but really it was because she had the power of a god, and that is something that she wants to touch again. And that, to me, is just such a fascinating thing, a fascinating thing, a fascinating thing. Um, because I can't imagine what it must have been like for Ivy to have been so omnipotent and so powerful at one point that she would have been able to crush Gotham City with, you know, without barely lifting a finger. And now she's almost powerless, um, and to lose that so quickly and so fast after helping the city, um, must really be devastating. Um, but that scene between her and the gardener. Uh, just a really great scene of, of her kind of demonstrating her, her current mental state. Um, but no, this issue was good. 
Uh, it did not. It did not hurt me as much as I thought it would. Um, there was no second issue slump. I think it was not as good as the first, but I did really enjoy it. Um, and uh, I, I'm still super into this story uh, right now. Again, I think the the stuff that's really resonating with me is personal stuff, like seeing Ivy's you know mental state, like how she is processing losing all that power and what she's willing to do to try and exact some kind of justice for losing that power. Um, and Again, I'm just really hoping we get more of that um, throughout the rest of the series. Um, the art from by the art from by the art from Marcio Takara is amazing. Uh, probably the best I've ever seen of his stuff. Um, I was never a huge fan of him, but uh, I think he's really outdoing himself here, and that definitely works well with the colors um, and uh, really kind of creates this almost like uh, like hazy. Um, I don't want to say dusty, but but uh, yeah, very 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 plants, very green, if you will, uh, series where it feels like everything almost has like a, like a green, uh, uh, earthen tint to it, uh, if you will. Um, and I really like that. Um, it definitely fits with, you know, Poison Ivy's character and, and everything else. So this one got an 8.5 out of 10 for me. Um, not the nine that I gave, uh, the first issue, but still really good and still very satisfying. Oh, right. And our last issue for this week is uh, certainly no slouch, but, uh, well, we'll see if it's possibly slouching in story. Uh, that is Dark Crisis number two, the big summer event that everyone, and by everyone, I mean about 15 people, is excited to read. Um, this is, of course, brought to us by Mr. Joshua Williamson, Daniel Sampier on art, Alejandro Sanchez on colors and letters from Tom Napolitano. This issue can be summed very briefly because it is not a lot of content. And I was actually shocked um, how quickly this read. And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. Um, <clears throat> we check in very briefly with Pariah, who is still spouting insane nonsense of how he's going to work with the Great Darkness to bring a new crisis, to create a new multiverse, and to bring Earth Zero to its knees cut to Titan's Tower where, miraculously, Nightwing has survived, where, you know, oh my god, that should be a, a major revelation that all of the Titans are still alive, but if you had looked at the previews for the next issue, you would know that they were going to survive, and there really wasn't any kind of concern in that regard. Um, but <clears throat> Deathstroke is holding the rest of the, the Titans captive alongside the Secret Society, um, and... Deathstroke in particular wants to challenge Nightwing, not necessarily just to kill him, but really to prove a point, um, as he uh, states, um, because he feels that a message should be sent to all the people who have decided to step up, all the legacy heroes who have tried to step up in the absence of the, um, the old guard, the Justice League, who are now dead. You get it? You see? Oh, God, yeah, the, 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 the themes here are not subtle at all very apparent um but uh yeah no it's really just it's it's that fight between deathstroke and nightwing they're trading blows they're trading words dick seemingly gets the upper hand for a moment and is ready to challenge uh, uh deathstroke to one final battle um but thankfully to the timely intervention of one john kent uh who arrives to make sure that uh, dick is not taken out of action too quickly uh, they're able to work together uh, to prevent things from getting worse. But of course, that can only last for so long as who should arrive but Cyborg Superman, which admittedly was a fun 
throwback to uh, that issue of Deathstroke Inc., where they had recruited Cyborg Superman to work for the Society. So now we see that um, he's still under the employ of the Society and is, is willing to work uh, alongside this new crazed version of Deathstroke. Um, he's just hellbent on proving uh, that uh, all the legacy should die and that no one should step up and you should just embrace the darkness and it's the darkness versus the light and you, you get it, you get the idea. But anyway, um, <clears throat> before they can mop the floor with the Titans, Cyborg Superman and uh, Deathstroke and the rest of the society, the great darkness through Pariah calls out to Deathstroke and lets him know that he doesn't want the Titans dead just yet. He's got plans for them. They factor into something, so they need to make their way out and uh, and you know try not to... Try not to ruin things too much before they make their exit. Um, Deathstroke is admittedly a little upset at this, but decides that it's for the best, and it's going to do what the Darkness says. The rest of the society are kind of confused, uh, in particular Warp, who is like, why did we come here then? What was the point? But he doesn't give a shit, because he's Deathstroke. So he's like, let's just hide till it out of here, boys. Um, and we'll, we'll be back, rest assured. Um, John is unable to get the upper hand on Cyborg Superman, but thanks to some help from Cyborg, uh, he is able uh, to shut that down um, before things get worse. Um, and who should show up after all the carnage and all the mayhem of Black Adam, who is really just being a dick here, um, even more so than usual, saying, this is clearly why you're not ready to lead a Justice League. John kind of calls him out, saying, well, if you're so equipped and you know so much, why aren't you leading a Justice League? And Black Adam says the smart thing. says, that's exactly what I'm going to do, boy. Sit down. Um, I'm going to put together my team and lead them uh, to justice. Um, we cut to a strange alien ship, with little to no context, where we check in with, and I couldn't believe this, a Kyle Rayner, who is alive and is not dead and is not floating through space aimlessly and is not on some strange alien planet, though based on his outfit, was probably prisoner on some planet or another. Um, and this is him escaping. Uh, so good for you, Kyle. You were able to make it out. Um, but before he's able to complete his daring escape, who should show up but Hal Jordan and Joe Mullane to save the day? Only they're too late because Kyle can take care of himself, which I'm shocked. I'm surprised he can even, you know, get out of the bed in the morning. Um, but Hal and, and uh, Kyle are very happy to see each other, and Hal fills them in on everything that's been happening with the Corps and how they're dead and how the Flashes are all on quest to find uh, Barry Allen <clears throat> um, before, you know, the Great Darkness shows up and all this craziness that uh, Black Adam uh, conveyed to Hal. Um, and Kyle rather smartly says, well, there's only about three of us, and I don't have a ring, so we really can't do all that much. Um, and Hal, being Hal, says, oh yeah, you know I wouldn't come without some kind of backup. And he's there with the rest of the Green Lantern Corps, all restored to how they previously were, um, and uh, basically tells Kyle, it's time to suit up. We're getting back to work. Um, so, oh, okay, where to start? Um, I guess let's start with the ending, because this basically just confirms that the whole Jeffrey Thorne Green Lantern run was utterly pointless and meant nothing, um, and aside from giving John the Godstorm, it really left no lasting impact on the Green Lantern mythos, because I'm looking at the splash page here of all these various Green Lanterns, and most of the ones that were thought to have died in the Invictus storyline are all back here. Arisi is here, 
Simon's here with his arm fixed, by the way, um, and 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 everything else, like just just okay. Uh, Guy is here, Jessica, like all the people. Everyone is back to how they were. Even lanterns that we haven't seen in a while, like you know Medville and and other ones are here, um, and uh, really just kind of confirms that them trying to slaughter the core was. Uh, utterly pointless and was reversed and had no relevance. So glad I really didn't care about that run because it offered nothing uh, of, of substance at all. Um, but that's just me ranting about a book I didn't particularly like. Um, the rest of the book is okay, but I think I discovered something while reading this book that I, I wrote down about our, our dear friend, uh, Mr. Josh Williamson. Uh, and, and what I discovered is that Josh Williamson is very good at writing fun, lighthearted, action-packed, and often emotional and personality-centric stories, let's call it that, um, like Birthright, Deathbed, Robin, like all these books are very fun, very enjoyable. Um, they don't take themselves too, too seriously, but they have their emotional moments when they need to. Um, but really, they're just, you know, they're, they're kind of like Josh expressing that, uh, that, that inner part of himself that just wants to have fun and, and enjoy uh, the stories. Um, what I realized is these are the kinds of stories that he excels at. What he does not excel at is the big, metaphorical, cosmic, intertwined stories like Dark Crisis is going to be. And I can see that. It shows so much in this issue because the best moments are the ones between characters where it feels like he's having fun getting these interactions and stuff like that. Or really emotional moments between like Deathstroke and Nightwing. Um, and, and all that stuff is pretty good, but as it ties to the larger story of the Great Darkness, it, it almost makes it feel like, the Great Darkness story anyway, it, it almost makes it feel like it's not important. It makes it feel like it's on the back burner, like it's, it's, it's the, the least important part of the story. The most important part of the story is the character stuff. And that's all well and good, but for a book called Dark Crisis that has been hyping up this mysterious malevolent force so much, I kind of expected to see more of the story tying into that, and we're really just not getting it. The majority of this issue was devoted to the Nightwing Deathstroke conflict. We only got a couple of mentions of the Great Darkness here and there, um, and you know, I mean, <clears throat> it just it feels like he wants to prioritize one thing because that's what he likes to do, but he wants to also have the great, you know, cosmic epic battle that you would expect from a big event. And I think he kind of has to realize that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you, you, you almost have to either decide between the two and play to the stuff that you like, or, you know, just don't have any of that stuff in there, which you can't really do now because the story is built around the great darkness. So it, it, you can't really just take it out. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I, I was reading this issue and I, and I realized that and I was like, yeah, I get it now. Like that doesn't make him a bad writer. The fact that, he has his strengths in certain areas. I just feel that he's so ill-equipped to tackle a story like this, which is a shame because I really like, you know, some of the ideas in here. They're not new ideas uh, by any means. Um, it's funny that this book is being called the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths because more often than not, that's usually the label that's applied to another sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths from 50 years ago called Infinite Crisis, which you know, I'm sure most people are familiar with. Um, and that one tackles similar points, um, although that one is really more focused on the you know, darkness of the post-crisis era and that sort of thing. Um, but 
I feel like a writer who had a better sense of the cosmic, you know, metaphorical stories like a, like a John Hickman or a Jim Starlin or, you know, someone like that, someone who could handle this type of material um, would have a much better time telling the story and would probably do a much better job handling that bigger stuff than, uh, than Josh Williamson would. Because the character moments, all those go over pretty great. It's just, I mean, every time they're trying to connect it to the bigger, you know, great darkness stuff, it doesn't even really feel important. It's, it's almost like a, a footnote, like, oh, yeah, I guess that's still happening. Anyway, Destro versus Nightwing, that's awesome, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just very strange. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe after this is all over, when Josh kind of steps away, from most of his DC projects and goes off and does Dark Ride. Um, he'll kind of get back to that uh, type of, of storytelling where it's it's very small, you know, it's, it's a lot more personal, um, but, you know, lighthearted and fun. Like, let's not try and do these big, crazy, epic, bonanza, you know, cosmic, multiversal stories. Like, let's just get back to basics. Let's let's go back to what we did with, with Birthright. Let's go back to what we did with Robin and, and just try and work with that as best as we can. Um, so this one got another 8 out of 10 for me. The previous issue also got an 8 out of 10. It is not bad by any means. And I have to say the art by Danielson Perry is carrying this book. My God, there are some gorgeous panels. And it's really, I mean, I don't want to say it's the only reason you should be reading this book, but it's certainly the best reason to read this book. It's, I mean, I'm telling you, it's not the story. The art is just incredible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a bad book by any means. It just... It feels like it wants to do one thing, even though it's established itself as another thing. Um, and, and that just makes it feel very awkward at points. Um, and, and I wonder just how the hell this story is going to end when it clearly just wants to have these moments, but also has to tie into the great darkness and multiverse stuff and all that crap. So uh, we'll see how it ends. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope it doesn't disappoint, but considering his track record doesn't look great but that is all the books for this week um so uh before we wrap it up i guess i will go into my top three books of this week it feels a little weird not doing it uh with with josh and uh and rob i miss you guys um but uh you know uh, feel free to to send me your top three when you guys uh, get a chance to read the books and then we can uh, have a proper debrief um but as for me, uh, my top three books were, um, I had uh, Flashpoint Beyond, number three, uh, in third place. Uh, I had Poison Ivy, number two, um, in second place. And then my first place pick, just I, I think a really um, fascinating, a really well-constructed first issue. I don't want to say exceptional, uh, but I think a really well-constructed um, and, and really, um, you know, re really satisfying first issue uh, in Batman 125. Um, just the start of something new, a new era, the Zdarsky era, the Canuck era, um, which I'm, I'm definitely excited to see how that all plays out. Um, I guess if I had to choose a favorite moment, I mean, there were plenty of, of favorite moments uh, throughout Batman, certainly in Flashpoint Beyond, um, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would be lying if I said there weren't some pretty cool moments in that fight between uh, Deathstroke and Nightwing in Dark Crisis, even if it really just isn't working all that well as a story. Um, uh, but if I had to, just based on art alone and how badass of, of a scene that is, 
that whole double page uh, spread of Nightwing versus Deathstroke, where he has his, um, you know, his Eskra mistakes and Night or Deathstroke as a staff, um, all just incredibly well illustrated and really fluid, um, and it was just, I mean, just totally awesome. Like just from an uh, from completely divorced from the book, it was just really cool. Um, I almost want to give a second favorite moment, which I guess I, I can, uh, just to pat out the time, um, in Batman 125, where uh, Batman is talking to Penguin. Um, Penguin is sort of commiserating about how the Gotham elite had mistreated him and never you know, treated him as, as he uh, should have been treated. Um, and Batman very bluntly just says, life isn't fair, Cobblepot, um, as, as uh, Oswald makes a face that I'm sure many have made when someone tells you life is not fair. Um, so yeah, no, uh, good stuff there. Um, definitely a lot of, of moments that I really enjoyed this week. Those were two that uh, came to mind uh, in particular. Uh, well, I really did enjoy that, folks. Um, but I'm afraid I have to leave now because my toilet is overflowing uh, and I don't have a plunger. So I am going to have to call the plumber and figure this out uh, because it is overflowing and it is such a mess. Um, and honestly, this is probably the worst thing that I've ever smelled. It is definitely, uh, Josh, insert the biggest thinker audio clip here. Cool. Um, as for my biggest stinker uh, this week, it was kind of tough because I, I don't know that I had one that I actively disliked. If I had to give uh, biggest stinker to, to at least one book, probably be Nubia, uh, Queen of the Amazons. Not because it was a terrible book, but just because it was very weak. Just, I feel like I'm waiting for you know, something, anything kind of major to happen post-trial of the Amazons. And I just I don't feel like I'm getting it in this book. Um, so I'm really hoping that it can find some kind of way to just step it up um, and soon, um, you know, before I, I just completely lose all interest in this book, which is a shame um, because I think Nubia is a great character um, and definitely you know, deserves a great series. Um, but uh, I guess we shall see. Well, I don't have any titles to nominate for the dump list, and uh, we are a democracy, so I can't just nominate them all on my own. Um, so I guess we will hash that out once we all are uh, on the uh, on the network in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a uh, this has been odd um, recording by myself. I, uh, I I don't like it very much, if I'm being honest. Uh, I feel like I've talked too much, um, and uh, I, I just feel very uncomfortable um so next week it will not be that i promise uh and you will not just have to hear my annoying voice for an hour and change um but yeah that's our show uh thanks for listening everybody we'll be here next week talking comics and we hope you'll stop by uh you remember you can always go to uh notarobotpodcasts.com for all of our episodes and our other shows with all sorts of people we are of course still on substack putting out great content. Um, I have been a little lax with the Indie Corner, but it will be coming back soon. Just life kind of got in the way, um, and uh, I, I just wasn't as on top of it as I should have been. Uh, but I've been reading plenty of great indie books, and I really want to get that, uh, that started back up again. So um, I will get there. Um, but uh, with that, there's only one way that we say goodbye around here. I guess I say goodbye around here today. Uh, until next time, 
be good to each other and don't be a robot.